Our scripture reading today is from Galatians chapter 3, verses tw verse 25 through chapter 4, verse 7, which is located in our church Bibles on page 974. Please stand if you are able as we read from the New Testament. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Please be seated. Thanks to Lynette. Let's pray as we come to the Bible this morning, asking to God to speak to us. Father, our delight is in knowing that you know us. You know, Lord, our comings and our goings, as the Bible says in the Psalms, our standing up and our sitting down, even the, the smallest of our movements is at the point of your attention. Because we matter to you, it is astounding to us as we grow in the Christian faith and discover just how broken we are, how sinful we are, that you, a holy God, should show us such love in having sent your Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And what a delight to know that by your Spirit, you speak to us the confirming words that we are your sons and daughters. So, Lord, we pray that you would open your word to us this morning in Christ Jesus. Amen. So, as we come to these verses at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, Paul has been addressing, you remember, these Gentile converts in Galatia, reminding them of the purpose of the law, not to offer salvation, but rather to be a kind of sheepdog meant to drive his people towards Christ and towards the gospel. Paul has therefore been asking the Galatians, he's saying, you've been freed from your old lives. Why on earth are you now returning to the captivity of trying to keep the law? To illustrate uh, this new freedom, I want to play you a clip from a famous movie, from an even more famous book. This scene is from the 1959 blockbuster Ben-Hur. And in this scene... Charlton Heston, who has until recently been chained to his galley oars on a Roman ship, is now being formally adopted by the man whose life 
be saved. The formalities of adoption have been completed. Young Arius is now the legal bearer of my name and the heir to my property. This ring of my ancestors would have gone to my son. So now it is yours. Strange destiny that brought me to a new life, a new home, a new father. It brought me here, it may take me away. But wherever I may be, I shall always try to wear this ring as a son of Arius should. With gratitude and affection and with honor. Apart from featuring one of the greatest uh, arm-clenching moves in the history of celluloid, the adoption by Consul Quintus Arius in uh, the ben movie Ben-Hur is one of the climactic moments in the movie. Because the movie is an intensely emotional story of an orphan who has lost his family, who has now, through a strange destiny as he describes it, found a new one. Wherever I will be, I will wear this ring as a son of Arius should, with gratitude, affection, and with honor, the words of an adopted son. As Charlton Heston's lines go, it's less memorable than get your stinking paws off me, you darn dirty ape, but it has a touch more gravitas. The thing that's powerful still about the novel of Ben-Hur and its numerous movies is that it mirrored the life of its author, Lou Wallace. Lou Wallace, as you may know, was a Union general who, in the years after the Civil War, had been he made a name for himself on the speaking circuit and, through a strange destiny, as he described it, met on a train of fellow veteran, a man called Robert Ingersoll, who had made his name similarly by speaking for atheism. And Ingersoll had told him that he wanted to meet with him to talk, and they talked about religion. And Wallace, who had gone into the conversation indifferent, he said, to the claims of Christ, came out of the conversation convinced, not of atheism, interestingly, but of the divinity of Jesus. And so he writes that he changed the title of the book that he had just finished, adding these words as a subtitle, A Tale of the Christ. Ingersoll, by the way, was so humiliated that he denied the encounter had ever happened, but Wallace said the meeting has changed his life, that and having a wife who had been praying for him. There could be no turning back, not for Wallace, not for the Galatians, not for you and me. If Paul were up here this morning at the pulpit, he would tell you that this freeing from the curse of the law, from the imprisonment of trying to save ourselves, this free gift of Christ paying the price that we couldn't pay, why would we act like we're trying to give it back? That's the question. In this next section, then, Paul is expounding the freedom of the gospel 
again trying to persuade the Galatians to turn back from their task in moving towards the law. How have we been freed? Well, that's Paul's question for the Galatians and for us. Three waypoints here. You can find this uh, text as Lynette read it to us on the reverse side of the worship guide. First of all, we have been freed to be Christ's together, verses 25 through 29. We have been freed to be Christ's together. These are now famous words, aren't they? Some of the most famous words from Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I was talking to my daughter in London the other day about the way that people can be so creatively stubborn in finding ways to make themselves appear better than others. Uh, I know I'm going to get some international emails about this, but there is, this is somewhat true of the culture that I grew up in, that people will do anything to kind of put themselves just a little bit above somebody else. And they have found a way to do it in um, defining who they are, but where they shop for groceries. I kid you not. So if you shop regularly at Marks and Spencer's M&S, M you are upper middle class. If you shop regularly at Waitrose, you're middle middle. If you're at Tesco's, you are lower middle. And if you found yourself at Aldi's or Co-op, you're out of luck. Everyone will look down on you. Do you shop at Aldi's? No, Waitrose actually. Grocery store snobbery. That's what Israel had done with the law. They had perverted it with their fallen hearts into a way of ranking themselves and each other. The law kept people apart. It kept people out. The law had been made to provide a socio-religious ranking that it was never intended to mean. There was this low wall. It was about four and a half feet. They know this in Herod's temple that had seven gates in it through which Jews would pass. But if a Gentile deigned to, there was a sign there, no foreigner is allowed past this point at penalty of death. But now Paul is saying, because of Jesus, Christ has died, verse 27, the barrier has been removed to the Almighty. The penalty has been paid. We read this, as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, regardless of your background. The point is not so much here about the mechanism of the doctrine of baptism as it is about the makeup of the church of Jesus now. All these people with their disparate and separate backgrounds and their rankings according to the way that the world thinks, see things. Christ has come, Paul tells them, and by faith you are all sons of God. The metaphor is awkward, I grant you, in modern ears, at least for half the people here this morning, right? But this is not about gender, it's about the inheriting position of a firstborn son who would inherit all his father's property, or as an adopted son, as in the movie Ben-Hur, would gain his father's name and property. So now this applies to you, whether you are a daughter, an adoptee, or a poor man without prospects. In Christ, Paul is reminding you, you are in the position of an inheriting son. So says the God of all grace to us in Jesus Christ. That's not to say that these distinctions are erased. 
there will still be Jews and Greek Christians, slave and free, male and female, but in Christ, in the first century, they no longer were subject to that as the primary dividing issues. Thus, verse 29, if you are Christ's, then who are you? You are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to the promise. We don't appreciate Paul's passion, I think, because we don't understand his calling. And this takes some investigation. There's a curious echo in Paul's story of his conversion in Acts 9. I encourage you to look at this, where where he remembers their words that Jesus commissioned him with through Ananias. This man is, quote, a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before nations and kings. And Paul, I think, would have, would have known immediately where those words came from in the Greek Septuagint, from Genesis 17. They were the words given to Abraham by promise, I will make you into nations and kings. And this was Paul's extraordinary calling. He understood it to be the instrument by which the gospel of Jesus would come to the multitudes, to all of those outside Israel, that it would be proclaimed to the Gentiles. For me, these words from Galatians 3 remind me of Martin Luther King. It was Galatians 3.28, you remember, which in the 1960s became the North Star of his faith in what God could do to change America. And so he said at one uh, commencement speech in Illinois, with this faith, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. What an extraordinary speech that was. And wouldn't Paul say, with his eyes fixed here on the gospel and on the freedom of Christ, that this is true of the church? We no longer go by the way that the world ranks people, by the way that the law, in our manipulation of it, has tended to separate people. There are not to be, if you will, solely Republican or solely Democratic churches or solely homeschool or solely public school churches or solely mask and no mask churches or, to Dr. King's point, solely black or white churches any more than there are churches for people who shop at Kroger's and for others who shop at Fresh Market. It may happen, but it is not the design of the gospel. And those of us who've lived, right, through these last few years, we've seen this happen. We know how this can happen. This is not hypothetical. We saw it during the pandemic, this great temptation to return again to a kind of outworking of the law, to find our value, not in Jesus, but in something else. Now, that's not to say that there's one church, one local church that will be able to satisfy everybody, that will suit every need or every liking, People will still be Baptists, right, or Presbyterians, thank God. But for us, in clinging tightly to the gospel and to Christ, we should welcome all kinds of people who come in here looking for Christ and join with them as sisters and brothers, knowing that it is Jesus that makes us one. No one person better than another, no one worse, because we're all worse, right? except for the grace of God. So there is room for distinction and for variety, but the gospel insists we have been freed to be Christ's together. 
Second, we've been freed from enslavement by the law. Look at these verses 1 through 3. Paul says, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Verse 3. As Paul depicts here God's covenant plan, he pictures the Galatians like children waiting to come of age. We've been reminded of the pain of this in our household. We have a high school senior who, in the words of Shakespeare, is like a greyhound in the slips, straining upon the start. She cannot wait to leave and to gain her maturity. My daughter, maybe it's true of you as you look at your children, has actually been much better than I was. But it is a picture of deep frustration, isn't it, as the young adult seeks to be loosed into her maturity. Freedom is in view, but still the old jailers keep her in bondage. And it could be worse. I was reading this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this in history. Spare a thought for King Henry VIII's son. Henry, Edward VI was his name. Interestingly, the only reformed king of England. A second Josiah, they called him. But all the way through his reign, he had people looking after him because he wasn't old enough to rule in his own right. So here's a picture of him. There he is, trying to look as terrifying as his dad did, not quite succeeding. But imagine this, imagine being king and not being able to get your own way. How frustrating would it be? I will stay and watch the dancing. No, your majesty, put your toys away. It's time for bed. <laughs> Commentators are divided as to whether this reference here is about coming of age or adoption. But they're all of them sure that what's in view here is conferring new status and new freedom. It may be that one of the illustrations here when he talks about putting on baptism is as a putting on a cloak, a veiled reference perhaps to the toga virilis which was a boy would put on when he, he entered adulthood. But as we've seen in the conferring of the status sons to people through adoption, this was the life-changing moment. This was, became not simply an adult, but you became the inheritor of all that your family possessed. So Quintus Arius says, the legal bearer of my name and the heir to my property. That's what you have become, Paul is saying, in the gospel. The legal bearer of God's name, the heir to his kingdom. Paul's reminding the Galatians that the God of Israel has made even the Greeks, they used to call these people dogs, who knew nothing of the law. He has made them the inheritors of his kingdom through Christ Jesus by faith. The law has had a good purpose, but it has not been to save them, but to make them sons and daughters. To them now the judge of all the earth is father through Jesus Christ, verse 2. If you think about it, it would make a particularly spectacular soap opera to see the prodigal son released from jail. He comes home to his wealthy family. Perhaps they live in Beverly Hills. Certainly he is adored. He is fated by his community. And then in the dead of night, he gets into a taxi and drives all the way back to the prison because that's where he really feels at home. Surely no one in their right mind could do that. And yet that is sometimes what we are tempted to do, to act as if we are orphans, to act as if the gospel is not true of us. It's not a cultural imprisonment simply 
Paul says. It is a cosmic one. So here, look at this. We were, he says, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What does that mean? It's a bit clear in the NIV. He says we were in slavery under the elementary spiritual forces of the world. Paul is saying this is the hidden hand at work in the lives of people who are in bondage without Christ. These are the forces that we are dealing with, not with flesh and blood, right? But with the principalities and powers, religious or irreligious. This has been our biography that we have been drawn away by these forces under guise of the law. Like the corrupt guardians of an underage heir, it's these elemental spirits, they're going to pop up again next week, who have exploited the imprisonment of the law of human beings. Is the law then an instrument of the devil? By no means, Paul says. Paul has already told us that it was given by angels, holy spirits, if you will. The righteous law has been given, but it has been perverted and corrupted men's hearts as they have attempted to justify themselves and being drawn away, these elemental spirits have been all the more eager to enslave them. John Stott explains it this way. God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men and women to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and to drive people to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to our justification. Satan uses it as the final step to our condemnation. So here's what we need to remember, and I would say this to you, especially during your trials, especially during the worst times of your life, especially when you and I are tempted to believe that we have been quite abandoned and orphaned by the God who claims he loves us, right? We need to remember, Paul is saying, that God is not simply one of many actors vying for control. He is the prime mover. None may stay his hand, Daniel says. There is no other contender, no one, no other force that he has created that comes anywhere near his majesty. He is the first and he will be the last. And we are assured that you are his and none will snatch you from his hand. That is the truth of what the Bible tells us. It's what I am inclined to forget. I have been inclined to forget. And yet during the worst times in our lives, we find that he has not only been right there, but through even awful things, bringing us nearer by his great grace to us. This is not easy. This is remarkably difficult, perhaps the hardest thing that we've ever gone through. And yet God walks with us, and his remedy to us is that we would know more of him, more of his mercy and his love. So this is the joy of where we are, that our lives, no matter our circumstances, can rest in hope and joy because of Christ. We have been freed from enslavement to the law. And thirdly, finally, we have been freed to be heirs, not orphans, verses 4 through 7. Focusing on verses 6 and 7, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, when I read those words, I think of Luke 15 and the story of the prodigal son who at the worst moment in his life had one repeating thought. You remember what it was? It's repeated time and again in the story to the prodigal son. It is the word father. 
My father's servants have more than enough bread. I will arise and go to my father. I will tell him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. It's the thought of the father. The father might receive him back that makes him make the journey. And what does he discover? What does his older brother discover? The father is more generous, more forgiving than either of them had ever guessed. So the prodigal son speaks. What does he speak when he gets home? He speaks the law formula to his dad. And the father dismisses it. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And if there was a Greek word for fiddlesticks or pshaw, the father would have used it. Instead, he initiates a kind of coming-age ceremony, right? Just like in Ben-Hur, a, a kind of re-adoption party. The best robe is put on the prodigal son, his father's ring placed on his finger. He is received into the family once more, and the unfortunate fatted calf, after the children's sermon, is sent to the kitchens. Why? Well, because the son was dead and is now alive, was lost and is now found. Because the father has earnestly desired to bring him home, even at dear cost to him, and he has. And what has happened to the son? Well, by God's spirit, the most curious thing has happened to that formerly sophisticated, you remember this start of the story, I'm a grown-up now, give me what's mine, prodigal boy. What has happened? Well, the same thing as Paul is describing in Galatians 4, verse 6. How do you know? This is so curious. How do you know when you've come of age as a Christian, when you're all grown up, when you cry out to God like a little one, Daddy, Father, when you're not independent, when you don't say to yourself, I've got this sussed, I can work it out on my own now, I'll see you at the end of the journey, God. Not at all. A tender heart that is able to come to a father who he knows loves him with the deepest hurts and the closest things. And it's not that the law doesn't matter to our Father in heaven. He will pay, right, a dear price to see his justice done. God sent forth his Son to redeem those who were under the law. And God could only do that by both keeping the law and paying for it. But this was the prize for him. You were his bride, the church, that you will see one day in all her glory in Christ. And the astonishing priority to us is that God should even consider doing this given our own prodigal selfishness. So verse 5, that we might receive adoption as sons. All of which begs the question for the Galatians and for us, why then do we continue to act like orphans and not heirs? Again, remember the picture of the inheritor of the kingdom, the heir of the kingdom, doesn't get to his palatial estates, his family estates, and strut self-righteously around like the lord of the manor. No, he or she sticks with his or her dad, marveling at the mercy, the cost, the forgiveness, and the gift that has been given to them. So in closing then, I think this invites some present diagnostic questions whether you consider yourself religious or irreligious, whether you would say you've been a Christian for decades or if you've just become one. Because for most of us, as my mother once said to me, I think quite wisely, most of us don't work out what sin is until we're in our 40s. 
which may be good news to you if you're 39. But equally, most of us may not have a clue, right, how really wide and long and high and deep is the love of God for us who has adopted us in Jesus, perhaps until we'll into middle age. But there is no coincidence. It is as you understand how much you've been forgiven that you understand how deeply then that you are loved and how closely God walks with you, even on days when you think he's gone. There's a lot we could say, but here's one lady's experience of adoption to think about as we close. This is a lady I knew in London. She was in my church there. This is Rosemary Miller writing in From Fear to Freedom. Because I did not believe God loved me on the basis of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, I could not face the risk of seeing my sins as my own responsibility. So... Having tried to clear my conscience by blaming others, I turned on the afterburners and made myself busy with work and duty. But now I understand what Martin Luther was talking about. In the righteousness of faith, we render, we give nothing to God, but we only receive and allow another to work in us. This is what he called a passive righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes from elsewhere, right? a righteousness that is credited to our account through faith. This, she says, was Christ's righteousness bought with the price of his blood on the cross. The reason it had been so difficult, Rosemary says, to have a personal faith in Christ was that I had not experienced total forgiveness. But now I was bringing real sins, including my attitudes of self-dependence and blame-shifting, to a real saviour, and they had been forgotten. How awesome it is to be loved unconditionally by a holy, righteous God. My friend, if you have been playing it safe, as I have tended to do over the years, as if you're playing poker with God, and even after all these years, the, the highest value sin cards are still in your hands. This is the way we play it safe, right? We take the gospel, but we don't admit to perhaps ourselves even, but still less to God or to others, the things that are really true of us, the things that we've done, the depths of the things that we're ashamed of. It's a little holdout in our lives where the gospel doesn't go. It's a little hole, in a sense, where the mercy of God doesn't reach, which is a shame because if we open that to God, if we played our cards on the table, we would experience the knowledge of the freedom and the love that God gives us in Christ, that those things too are covered. That when we say, you can't say, see this God, he says, nonsense. He says, fiddlesticks. He says, pshaw, show it to me. And know that my son's love, my son's work has carried that sin. So, I think for some of us, the healing is to still confess and bring to God those hurts, maybe those present things that we are so struggling with, not to keep a little part of our lives away from him, but perhaps with a firm friend in prayer to confess those things to him and to know that in our adoption, those things are covered. So these are the words of Paul to us. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray.
Our Father, that picture in Ben-Hur of that adoption ceremony seems like fiction, but we are told in the Bible that it is absolute fact. That at the point where Christ died and said it is finished, at the moment that he rose for our justification, at the time when he ascended to be seated again at the right hand of the Father, it was solidified. All of those that you had given to him were kept by him and are yours forever. It's an astounding thing, Father, for us to plumb the depths of that, to know that the things that we keep from you, we can show to you, to know that the things that we are ashamed of, we can find forgiveness for, to know that where we believe ourselves to be orphans, we can know that truly we are your sons and daughters in Jesus. Amen.